0: So I'm going to stall a little bit because we might still have a couple come in, but I, um, let me gather my thoughts for a second. Okay, we're in John 9 and 10. All right, so healing of the blind man, good shepherd discourse, lots of good stuff going on in those chapters. And so I want you to take a moment, maybe if you have your book with you, flip through your book, see if there's anything you underlined or highlighted, or you can just flip through, those, kind of peruse those chapters in your Bible and see if there's a verse that stands out to you and um, share it with your group. I'm going to give you about five minutes so not everyone will get to share. The talkers can share, and the quiet introverts can listen and have such a good time just listening, all right? So I'll give you about five, five minutes for that. Well, we better get started so that we don't run out of time. I love hearing all of the chatter. All right, I'm going to open in a word of prayer and then we will dig in. We're going to cover 9 and 10, but we're going to like hone in on the the good shepherd discourse in chapter 10. So, but we'll we'll get a little little bit of it all. All right, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and I Thank you for this gospel that we have before us that we are getting to walk through together. I thank you for uh, just how clearly it presents to us um, just how worthy Jesus is of our our faith and our worship and the whole of our lives. And so, Lord, I just pray as we continue through um, these chapters tonight that your Holy Spirit would be our guide that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to respond to what you reveal. I pray that these um, chapters would stir our affections for you and that it would lead us to a greater commitment to follow our Savior and to um, tell others about him and to demonstrate his love and his grace to the people around us. And we just thank you so much for all that you do and all that you are in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, this past October, and some of you, if you were in the Isaiah study, you might remember the week I was gone, and you watched a video, and it kept turning off and coming back on and turning off and coming back on. So fun, right? Um, But Greg and I, the reason I was gone is we took an anniversary trip to Zion National Park in Utah. If it is not on your bucket list and you enjoy hiking and outdoors, it needs to be. It was a phenomenal trip, one of the best we've ever been on. But one of our first adventures we took when we got there was a hike to watch the sunrise at the special, like where everybody said, you've got to see the sunrise here. And that meant, of course, that we had to drive into the park, um, find a parking spot and hike to the overlook before the sun started to come up, like well before the sun started to come up. And if you've ever driven through a national park at night, you know there are no streetlights. If there's not a car or a lodge nearby, it is pitch black darkness for miles and miles. It was the darkest darkness. This girl from the suburbs where lights are everywhere, has <laughs> ever seen in nature without a flashlight or uh, my cell phone on. Like, I couldn't even see my hand right in front of my face. I will say, though, he you looked up, it was like the best stargazing I have ever experienced in my life because we, we don't have dark, 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 darkness around, around here to see that. Um, But anyway, the reason I open with that story is because we know one of the main themes, one of the big threads that John pulls through his whole narrative is the thread of darkness. Darkness and light. And uh, that theme of darkness and light reaches its climax in two scenes in the book of John. The first is when Jesus, talked about it last week, Feast of Tabernacles, he was likely illuminated by the glow of those giant candlesticks in the temple. And he stands up and he declares, I am the light of the world. So that's one scene where you're like, whoa, this theme is really, really coming, coming out. The other scene, the second scene, um, where this theme of darkness and light comes to a climax is in Jesus' healing of the man born blind. And that is where we're going to kind of pick up in our study tonight, um, I have once again on your listening guide here. Make sure you have this in front of you, and no, it is it is a different one. Even though it still says week four, it is week five. That is a typo. <laughs> um, but I have once again provided the basic structure of the narrative so far, and I'm going to go through this really fast. Just kind of review. And it's gonna, we're going to draw some conclu- different conclusions from it this time. All right, so Gospel of John starts out with the introduction. You have that incredible prologue. And then you have the testimony of various witnesses. So John comes out with a bang. He tells us right up front who Jesus is. And then he's going to unpack that throughout the rest of the Gospel. Well, then you move into chapters 2 through 4, which... Uh, Are the words and works of Jesus that are connected with four significant Jewish settings or institutions? So you have um, Jesus at a wedding, you have Jesus at the temple, where he actually says that his body is the new temple, Uh, you have Jesus with a rabbi, and then you have Jesus at Jacob's well. All right, so those. Um, those are the scenes that occupy chapters 2 through 4. Well, then you move into another section of the narrative, which spans from chapter 5 all the way through chapter 10. And this is the words and works of Jesus that are connected with four Jewish, fe- Jewish feast or um, significant sacred days. All right, so first we have the Sabbath, then the Passover, then the Feast of Tabernacles, and then the Feast of Dedication, also known as Hanukkah, and one thing that I had never noticed before, and maybe you picked up on it in your reading because John points it out, but there's a movement through the seasons, right? So Passover is in the spring, Feast of Tabernacles is in the autumn, and then Hanukkah is in the winter, and so you think of John, and all this, he's always building in all this symbolism, Um, and so these scenes are, as they move through the seasons, they're literally getting darker, um, foreshadowing the, the coming to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, which will result in his departure. So the, the light of the world is actually going to depart from the world, and so he's definitely playing on that symbolism. It's getting darker as the Jews, um, the intensity of their rejection is growing as well. So pretty cool stuff that, I don't know, usually it takes me about 50 times through to (laughs) pick up on that stuff, maybe the 20th commentary I've read. But anyway, well, let's look at the last scene in the Feast of Tabernacles section, Uh, and this starts in chapter 9, verse 1. And this is the story of the healing of the man born blind. It says, as Jesus was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And there the disciples are really revealing the common theology of suffering at the time. If you were suffering from especially congenital disease, it was proof that there was some kind of sin, either in your parents or in you. Um, you see this in Job's friends, right, and the, the things that they say. This is a very prevalent, very common view, and you can still find this view today in um, certain pockets. <laughs> Verse 3, Jesus says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. So Jesus corrects their theology. And he says, he doesn't say that sin and physical ailments are never connected, but he definitely blows to smithereens any generality we might make about sin and physical um, suffering and in this case that wasn't those things weren't connected Um, this man was born this way so that God's glory could be displayed in his in his life particularly in his healing that's about to take place verse 4 we must do the works of him who sent me while it is day night is coming when no one can work as long as I am in the world I am the light of the world. Now that verse I believe is inserted just in case any reader of this gospel might have missed it. John is going out of his way to make sure we know this story of the man born blind being healed, it is inseparably linked to what Jesus has previously declared about himself that he is the light of the world. So that statement, that theme, it is still in play, and that's really what this whole story is about. Look at that first bullet point on your listening guide after those boxes. It says, the physical blindness and miraculous sight of the man born blind is inserted into the narrative, not just as a great story, not just as a, yay, Jesus, he's powerful and amazing, but specifically to illustrate The realities of spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. It shows us what happens when the light of the world shows up and invades the darkness. Um, There is a lot of really cool stuff that happens with this blind man. I love him. Do you not love him? I just, I would love this story. I think the characters are fantastic. Um, And I know a lot of you are Chosen fans. Is this scene in there? Do they cover it? Not there yet. All right. Man, every week all the Chosen fans have been coming out and, and telling me about it. But anyway, this is going to be a good one when they do get to it. Um, so lots of cool stuff going on. But really the focus and what, 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 what I think John would want us to, to be kind of rattled by is the response of the Pharisees. That's the real standout feature in this story. And I want you to skip down to verse 35 and take a look. At where it all kind of lands. All right, verse 35. So um, the man and his family had been kicked out of the, the synagogue because, you know, of course, Jesus heals on the Sabbath, right? And so they get in big trouble for he actually went and washed on the Sabbath, and it was a whole thing. So verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, and when he found him, he asked, "'Do you believe in the Son of Man?' Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him, he asked. And Jesus answered, You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Oh, I believe, Lord, he said. And he worshiped him. Now that's really significant. We've, worship has come up. Remember John 4. Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. They're discussing, like, Samaritans say this is the place of worship, Jews say this is the place of worship, and Jesus says, you know what, a day is coming when it's not about a place, it's all about a person. You're going to worship in a person, it's me, right? And so very significant that we now have someone worshiping the person who is Jesus Christ. So those, those dots are, are, are some that we, we should be connecting. Verse 39 Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked them, and John loves to load questions with irony. This is one of those. We aren't blind too, are we? And I want to just like whisper, that's the whole point. You know, it's like, we're not blind too. And Jesus' answer, if you were blind, verse 41, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. It's interesting, this whole story started with a question about the man and his sin. (laughs) It's ending with a statement, not about the blind man and his sin, but about the Pharisees and theirs. If you were blind, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. All right. So this comes after a lengthy back and forth with the guy uh, and his parents about what had happened. Again, Jesus had healed him on the Sabbath, so the Pharisees had been drawing all kinds of erroneous conclusions about Jesus' intentions and um, the fact that he's blasphemous and he's making all of these claims about himself. And here's what Jesus is getting at. And this is the great paradox of spiritual discernment is that those who know they are spiritually blind apart from Jesus are the ones who get to see. And those who, like the Pharisees, think they can see on their own. And of course, the spiritual pride of the Pharisees, they thought they knew everything. They thought they saw everything better than everybody else saw it. But those who think they can see on their own are actually the ones who are spiritually blind. And so by the end of the story, the blind man and the Pharisees have traded places. And John has clearly answered the question of what it takes to see. What does it take to see? You have to believe in the one and only Son of God, who is one with the Father, who is the light of the world, whose name is Jesus Christ. That is the one requirement to truly see would love to spend more time in that story. We are going to move on. Um, We're going to spend a significant amount of time unpacking Jesus's words in chapter 10. The last 25 minutes of tonight's um, lesson is going to be all all about the good shepherd because it's one of my favorite passages in all the world and I'm the teacher and I get to decide where we spend most of our time. So we're going to spend most of our time there. Um, But first, I want to go ahead and, and cover that fourth and final feast in this section, the Feast of Dedication, also known as Hanukkah, and I have a confession to make. Until this Bible study, I never had any interest in learning about Hanukkah. In fact, if you were to have asked me prior to this study, is Hanukkah in the Bible, I would have said a very confident, no, it's not in the Bible, which is precisely why I've never care too much about studying the history of it and learning all about it. Well, guess what? It is in the Bible. It's in John, John chapter 10. It's in John chapter 10. So take a look with me. John chapter 10, verse 22, kind of sets the stage. It says, When the festival of dedication, Hanukkah, took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus is walking in the temple. So all this stuff that follows is, is happening Um, under that category, that heading of, it's Hanukkah, all right? Now, skip down to verse 33. So Jesus says a bunch of stuff they hate him for, and they try to stone him, and he says, well, what what works are you stoning me for? (laughs) In verse 33, he says, we aren't stoning you for good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Same thing we saw back in chapter 5, verse 18, right? Same, same thing, so, still has them rattled. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, isn't it written in your law? And he's going to quote from Psalms here. I said, you are gods. Now, in the Psalm he's quoting, the word gods, little g-o-d-s, is used to refer to the leaders or judges of the people, all right? So he's he's gonna argue from the lesser to the greater, right? He says, if he called those whom the word of God came gods, and the scripture cannot be broken, well then what's the problem with me calling myself God? Right? So that's kind of the, the argument that he's saying here. He says, Do you say you are blaspheming to the one the Father? And here's the key key words, set apart. Other tra- I have a CSB, other translations. Do you have a different word there? Then set apart in verse 36. You are blaspheming to the one, the Father. Is it set apart and then sent into the world? All right, everybody have set apart? I didn't know if there was a different word. Consecrate, yeah. So that's the other synonym that I was thinking of. Set apart or consecrated and sent into the world because I said I am the son of God. If I'm not doing my father's works, then don't believe me. But if I am doing them and you don't believe me, believe the works. This way, you will know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Same thing he had said back in verse 30 when he said I and the father are one huge claim. Verse 39, then they were trying to seize him again, but he escaped their grasp. And so he departed again, across the Jordan, and he will never return to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, we cannot grasp the significance of Jesus' words here in John 10 when he says, I am the one the Father has set apart, unless we have a basic understanding of what the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah is. And you don't have to have, you just super basic understanding. All right, I have a tiny description there for you uh, toward the bottom of your, uh, of your listening guide. Take a look. It's with the little menorah. See it? Hanukkah, which means rededication, was the celebration of the renewal of the Jewish worship in the temple after its three-year defilement by Antiochus, or Antiochus, it's pronounced different ways by different people, Epiphanes in 167 to 164 BC. And here's the key. It tells the story of Judah or Judas Maccabee clearing the temple of idols and setting it apart as holy once more. It's okay. <laughs> oh, that's so big. You are the last person I would think who caused trouble with your cell phone in this group. My goodness. Get it together, Courtney. Okay. No, <laughs> So, by the way, if you wonder where do we know this, like where do we get this, it's all spelled out in 1st and 2nd Maccabees, which uh, is part of the apocryphal writings. If you have a Catholic Bible, it's in there. Um, as Protestants, we don't see those writings as having the authority of Scripture, so they're not in our Protestant Bibles. However, they are very, very valuable in um, understanding the, his- the historical background of, of a lot of what's going on, particularly in that intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, so really valuable. I, I read some of First Maccabees this week for the first time. It was like so good, like so good. This story is phenomenal. So anyway, here's the significance. Here's the significance, all right? Last paragraph on page one of your listening guide. It is no coincidence that within a festival celebrating the consecration of the temple after it had been desecrated by idolatry that Jesus reveals himself As the one the Father has set apart or consecrated and sent into the world. His point is that he is the true temple where God's presence dwells, which is why the whole scene climaxes with his bold claim. I am in the Father, the Father is in me, I and the Father are one. So Jesus is coming. He's going to die. He's going to rise again, and it's his body that is the new temple. So you want to talk about purification of the temple? Well, here we go. Here we go. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful connection. I want you to zoom out with me one more time, and then I'm never going to do this to you again. We're going to move on. We're never coming back to chapters 1 through 10 again. And you're like, thank you. No. But zoom out with me one more time. Go back to these boxes I have here at the top of your listening sheet. We've got these eight things in in the white boxes. Eight significant Jewish institutions or festivals. So what is John doing with this structuring of the narrative? Well, here's what he's doing. Here's the point he's making is that the God of Israel's institutions and festivals, the God they celebrated at all of those, the God they worshipped at all of those, the God they honored at all of those, well, he has become incarnate in their very midst, no longer in symbols or rituals or sacred places, but in the very flesh of Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of everything they celebrated. Tragically, tragically, by the end of chapter 10, what John wrote way back in chapter 1, verse 11, is coming true. His own did not receive him, and the glory of God, now revealed in Jesus Christ, leaves the temple structure never to return. And by the time of John's writing, that temple had been destroyed. And there's a new dwelling place of God's glory built on the resurrected Jesus. It's called the church. And the original readers of this gospel, and you and I are a part of it. And it's just like, whoa, it's a beautiful thing that John is, is drawing out for us here in how he structured the first part of this narrative. So, anyway. That is the whole point. All right, now I want to spend the rest of our time, well, before we get into the Good Shepherd thing, any questions about what we've covered so far? We're about to turn the page of our listening guide. Any questions about any of this? All right, turn the page, turn the page. I want to spend the rest of our time walking through the Good Shepherd discourse in chapter 10. It is one of the most beloved chapters of the book of John, and for very good reason. Um, One thing we often fail to consider, though, because, oh my goodness, the metaphor of God being our shepherd is so precious to us as believers, it's often forgotten, it's lost on me many times when I'm reading that this chapter was not a comfort to um, the ones that Jesus is speaking to. Because if you connect the dots with between chapter 9 moving into chapter 10, he is speaking to the Pharisees who have just asked, "Are we? we, we aren't blind too, are we? And Jesus, in the Jesus-style way, basically says, yes, you are blind, and that means you are still in your sin. Earlier, he has told them they were going to die in their sin. So this is some really strong things that Jesus is saying. And so as he moves into chapter 10, it is essentially an indictment of their failure to shepherd God's people. They were the religious leaders. They should have been leading God's people into truth, and they were actually doing the complete opposite In Matthew 15, 14, Jesus calls the Pharisees blind guides. He does not use that phrase here, but that's essentially what he is saying in in these words. Uh, This discourse comes, again, like I said, right after his harsh words about their blindness in chapter 9. And so we need to make sure, as we're over here, like, oh, it's so beautiful. Like, the people that are actually hearing this for the very first time as Jesus is speaking it, or like getting really mad because he's making a very direct statement about their failure to lead. I've given you some, we're not going to go through all of these. You're probably familiar with a lot of these. There is a very strong, consistent use of the shepherd metaphor throughout the Hebrew Bible, throughout the Old Testament. I've given you some of those there. Probably the most beloved, the most well-known is Psalm 23. We could probably, most of us, stand up and quote it. Um, Even people who have never been to church, they've heard Psalm 23, right? It's just a beautiful, beautiful picture of uh, the the guidance and faithfulness of God. Um, But all those certainly play into this discourse, but the reference that is most consistent with the context of John 10 is actually Ezekiel 34. And I, if if you don't mind turning there, I'm going to read a little bit of it to you because it's just so helpful to understand what Jesus is, um, is really trying to do in this passage. All right, so Ezekiel 34. Oh, man, I feel like we've been to Ezekiel more than I've ever been to Ezekiel in my whole life in this study. We were in talking about the the, the water-gushing temple, and then we were like the dry bones coming to life, and now we are talking about the shepherds. All right, so Ezekiel 34. I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to kind of... Jump around a little. Verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the Lord God says to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? Verse 3. You eat the fat, wear the wool, butcher the fattened animals, but you do not tend to the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. Man, I was struck this week as I was reading that. I thought, man, that's what Jesus did his whole entire life in ministry. That's that's it. Strengthening the weak, healing the sick, bandaging the injured, bringing back the strays, seeking the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for the wild animals when they were scattered. My flock went astray on all the mountains and every high hill. My flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and there was no one searching or seeking for them. This almost reads like a lament. God is lamenting what these faithless shepherds have allowed to happen to his people. Look at verse 11. For this is what the Lord God says. See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is among his scattered flock, so I will look for my flock I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and total darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries, and bring them to their own soil. I will shepherd them on the mountains of Israel and the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will tend them in good pasture. And their grazing place will be on Israel's lofty mountains, There they will lie down in a good grazing place. They will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will tend my flock and let them lie down. This is the declaration of the Lord God. That is quite a contrast, isn't it? Between what the faithless shepherds of Israel had done and what God said he was going to intervene and do on Israel's behalf. And that is precisely the background and precisely the contrast that Jesus is drawing in John chapter 10. He's basically pointing the fingers at the Pharisees and said, you, blind guides, you have led the people astray and the Lord is now here to be the good shepherd, to gather his people, to lead them out to pasture. And so... Just a, a beautiful, I feel like that Ezekiel 34 just, it, it just enhances all the more the beauty of what, what's going on in John chapter 10. All right, well, there's a lot of ways that we could approach this passage, but given how often John 10, 10, which is what, you will have, I've come that you may have life, and life more abundantly. What a great verse. It's a great verse. Shows up on our coffee mugs, shows up on our wall art, shows up on our journal covers, shows up on our Bible covers, shows up on all kinds of things, right? It's a beautiful, beloved, perfect coffee mug verse. And so I want to approach this passage tonight specifically with the question, What exactly is the abundant life? What exactly is the abundant life? We celebrate it, we love it, we talk about it, we pray for it, but do we really know what it is? And here's why this question is so important. Because we are sitting here studying the abundant life in this lovely room that has lights that's connected to electricity, we've got air conditioning. I got this giant water bottle full of clean, fresh, filtered water that I got from one of nine faucets in my house. Um if anybody needs to go to the bathroom, they go right around the corner to wonderful indoor plumbing. Like we have so much, we've so much And that reality, the fact that we live here, it influences our working definition of the abundant life probably way more than we even realize. And here's the thing. Whatever definition we come up with, it has to work all over the world. It has to work all over the world. It has to ring true, here, but it also has to ring true in the slums of India. It has to ring true in the bush of Africa. It has to ring true in the brothels of Cambodia and in the streets of North Korea. And that's a pretty good principle we can, you know, you may not know a darn thing about biblical hermeneutics or interpretation, but a really easy thing to do is when you draw a conclusion from a passage... You need to ask yourself, does this work anywhere but America? (laughs) And if it doesn't, you have the wrong interpretation. Because God's word has been written for all people in all places in every generation. Which means, spoiler alert, the abundant life Jesus speaks of here has nothing to do with lavish material blessing, religious freedom, and the various privileges wrapped up in the American dream. Can we be thankful for all those things? Can we want all those things? Sure. But that's not what the abundant life is about. So with that said, let's see if we can, by looking at Jesus' words, figure out what it does mean. All right? Verse 1, chapter 10. Truly I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Skip down to verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And then verse 27, same concept is reiterated. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. All right, what Jesus is doing here is he is playing off a very familiar uh, scene to his original audience. We don't have a lot of sheepfolds or shepherds around here, Um, but a shepherd of ancient Palestine would have been incredibly familiar with his own flock. He would often have an individual call or a nickname for each of his sheep, which would come in handy when there were multiple flocks mixed together in one pin, and the shepherd of one flock needed to call his flock out to pasture. They could actually have a specific call, and these sheep, who aren't so smart, would know the voice and the call of their shepherd, and they would come out. And that's the picture. I have no idea. She's always asking me questions. I don't know. Man, I don't know what an average flock size would be. Oh, there we go. Okay. There we go. Yeah. All right. I love it. So you're like our resident sheep expert tonight. Okay. All right. All right. Well, let me know if I say anything wrong course i'm sure the farming practices of ancient palestine are somewhat different but i would imagine the flock size would be about the same okay okay man all right so you can be like i've got a flock and it's just five all right we're gonna say (laughs) we're gonna say anything okay um yeah okay so it, it varies it could be all different all different sizes um that word no you know, if you're if you're circling repeated words, you're going to be circling the word "no" because it shows up over and over and over again. it uh, If you look up that word, if you do a word study, it's more than just knowing some facts about someone or something. It speaks of a knowledge gained by experience. and when it's used in the context of a relationship, it implies intimacy. It's a deep, thorough knowing. And you know when we're in church, and Bible studies, and, and all these things, we talk a lot about the importance of knowing Jesus. And we talk about how we need to, it, it's more than just knowing about Jesus, but knowing him in a personal, intimate way. The incredible thing is that before we ever know Jesus, before we even hear his name, or have an opportunity to respond to him, he knows us he knows us it always really stands out to me that he that that phrase where he says he calls them by name I think it resonates so much with me because I'm so bad with names I just am the worst at remembering names I used to teach in the student ministry and I would have girls in my class I mean we'd be like eight months in that is too late to ask what your name is they've been there every Sunday for eight months and so I would rely on, like, hey, kind of drag it out, you know, or hey, girl, what's going on? You know, just, like, some kind of, like, yeah, of course I know your name. I'm just not saying it right now, you know. Um, and I just love the fact that Jesus knows my name. Like, he, Jesus never has to do that. He never has to rely on generalities. He's the creator. He knows his name. He knows us. He knows us. And here's what Jesus' intimate knowledge of us means on a practical level. It's so beautiful. It means fellowship. It it means the ability to commune with him freely, honestly, intimately, to actually spend time. When When we say things like, I spent time with Jesus this morning, like, That's just not a, that's not just a stupid thing Christians say. Like, we really can say that. We really can say that. My own, I know my own and my own know me. That's so personal. So personal. I talked to you in the very first week together. We were kind of landing the plane and like, okay, what's a practical takeaway? And I, I, I told you that. One of the most practical takeaways, especially from that introductory chapter of John, is if anybody's ever asked you, like, how do I know what God is like? Of course, we can hand them a systematic theology book. We can be like, go read the Bible. And you're like, okay, I guess about 20 years, I'll know what God is like. <laughs> um, or we can tell them, go read the Gospels and take a look at Jesus. That's what God is like. And that's a beautiful answer. It's an accurate answer. Jesus reveals the Father. And so if you are, have ever or are holding on to the idea that God is, like, way up there, you know, he cares about international events, like, really big deal ones, but he doesn't really care about you and your personal life, unless, of course, unless, of course, you sin. And then he notices and points his bony finger at you and is ready to smite you, you know. This passage introduces us to a very, very different view of God. Because it introduces us to the good shepherd who knows our name, who knows all our stuff, who cares about the details of our life, and is at this very moment calling us to his side so that he can lead us out into a pasture of abundance, which is continuing to fellowship with him. So what exactly is the abundant life? Well, one thing is that the abundant life is being intimately known by the good shepherd, and all the implications, the beautiful implications that go along with that, all right? Well, let's Let's see if we can pull anything else out. Verse 4 of chapter 10. When the shepherd has brought all of his own outside, he goes ahead of them. I want you to picture that. He's finally gotten them all out of the sheepfold, and he gets ahead of them. Why why does he get ahead of them? Because he's going to lead them. And tell them where to go. And the sheep, what do they do? Well, they follow him. Because they know his voice. They know that's their shepherd. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. Look at verse 27. I already read it, but it bears repeating My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. All right, so pretty straightforward concept being presented here. Those who are Christ's sheep recognize his voice, and they follow him. They follow him. And, you know, I I don't know a tremendous amount about sheep, but I do know a couple of very significant things. One, they are utterly defenseless. Like you are never going to see a sheep in a petting zoo or on the road or in a pasture and be afraid of it, right? No one has ever been afraid of a sheep, ever. They, you're, they're not going to bite you. They're not going to buck you. They are not. They've got no. They've got no ability to fight at all. Completely and utterly defen- defenseless. So if a predator comes along, they got nothing. They can, like, play dead, I guess. That's about all they could do. And so they are completely dependent on that shepherd to defend them. Right? So another thing that (laughs) I can really relate to about sheep is they have no sense of direction. Um, Fun fact about me, I cannot find my way out of paper bag. Like, I've lived in Brandon literally my whole life, and there's still times I'm calling my mom like where is this place again like I don't know so anyway sheep well I mean they've been known to There's stories of sheep just walking right off of cliffs because they're just not super aware you know where they are and so they need a shepherd to lead them to where they can go <laughs> they're never going to find that water in that green pasture on their own ever ever And so this idea of the shepherd going out ahead of the flock and the flock following, it is the most, it makes the most sense of any idea ever presented ever, (laughs) right? And if you understand that you're a sheep and you understand that your shepherd is absolutely necessary to your flourishing, you follow him, right? You follow him and you trust him even when he leads you through the weird, hard places. And so that's the picture um, that we get here The emphasis, um, of course, is not just hearing the shepherd, but actually doing what he says. You know, true sheep, don't just hear, take some notes, say a hearty amen, move on with their lives and do what they want. <laughs> right? that's, not, that's not the picture. They know how foolish that would be. So what exactly is the abundant life? Well, the abundant life is a life of being able to recognize the shepherd's voice, and, and getting to follow him, having a guide, having a defender, having someone you can trust when you, you don't know where to go. You don't know what to do. That's the abundant life. That's the abundant life. Now, as you read on, <laughs> the passage proves that Jesus had no problem mixing metaphors. I don't know if we have any English teachers in this group, but You're usually taught not to mix metaphors because it gets really confusing. Jesus had no problem with it because he mixes a metaphor. He says, I'm the gate and I'm the shepherd. And he kind of squishes those two things together. And the reason he mixes the metaphors is because both of them express two very different yet inseparable truths about the provision that Jesus supplies. So look at verse 9. Jesus says, I am... The gate or the door. Your translation might say the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. All right. So as the gate or the door, Jesus supplies entry into the fold and safety from the predators and thieves that would come and try to steal the sheep away. Notice that he is not a gate. It's not like there's 50 gates and I'm one of them. You know, <laughs> he is the One and only gate, same truth he's going to express in chapter 14, verse 6, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So when we come to the Father through the gate, who is Jesus Christ? We are guaranteed safety and protection, not physical safety and protection. Though I do believe God provides that, but it's not guaranteed. But we are guaranteed spiritual safety and protection from anything that would threaten our souls. Look at the rest of the verse. So he says, I am the gate. Anyone who enters by me, he will be saved. And, and, it gets even better, he will come in and go out and find pasture. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So the second metaphor, Jesus as the good shepherd, notice that he doesn't just bring the sheep into his fold and put them in a holding pattern until they die and experience the glories of heaven. It's not like you guys wait here until it's all over. No, no. Because he is the gate and the shepherd, there is abundance. There is pasture land to be experienced even now. So as the gate, he saves us and he keeps us. As the good shepherd, he leads us out into the green pasture. So you need both of those metaphors to really fill in what Jesus is and what he does. Now let's talk about this abundant pasture land. Now, if we remove the American spin on this passage, we can clearly see that the pasture itself is not its not stuff, right? There is no promise in this passage, no guarantee of physical health, wealth, safety, or the American dream. Now, can God provide those things? Yes. Does God provide those things? Yes. Can we pray for those things? Sure. Are they guaranteed? No, they are not. Not this side of heaven, right? So that's not what the abundant life life is, is being presented as. What we have here is actually much better than that. Because we have the promise that the shepherd himself will continually guide us, care for us, and lead us into places of spiritual rest and refreshment. And here's why this is better than stuff. You can go without stuff if you have a satisfied soul. If you don't have a satisfied soul, all the stuff in the world isn't going to fill you up. And I honestly think this is why God has given us celebrities. Right? I have to tell you, like, I watch these, you know, from, from time to time, a really good documentary will come out on Netflix about a celebrity in their life. There was one about Taylor Swift, I don't know, a couple years ago. And I remember watching it and think, oh, my word, I need to, like, do a Bible study. where We come and we watch this because Taylor Swift is awesome, but also because here, here, here she was, this superstar had everything, 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 everything. And she basically, the gist of it is, I had everything, and I was depressed, and I was miserable, and I was starving myself, and I was And, I, and it, I mean, how, how many times we have to hear that story, you guys? Over and over, like, for eons, as long as there's been famous people, that documentary has been made, right? This person who had everything, and they were so deeply empty. That's why the abundant life offered here is so much better than stuff. So much better than stuff. I have quoted from this book so many times. Some of you guys are like, oh, it's that quote again. I will keep quoting from it. In fact, my podcast episode that comes out tomorrow, I quote from it. Like, I quote from it. I quoted from it in every Bible study ever, I think. But if it's so good here, it's from Amy Carmichael's biography written by Elizabeth Elliott. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to India. Uh, she first went to Japan, and the, the parting, leaving her homeland, was really hard. She had to leave a man named Mr. Wilson, who was like a father to her. and It was just gut-wrenching, gut-wrenching to leave him. And this is what she, that's that part of the book, and this is what she writes. Never, I think, not even in heaven, shall I forget that parting. Amy wrote 52 years later. 52 years later. It's still a fresh, painful memory. It was such a rending thing that I never wanted to repeat it. Even now, my heart winces at the thought of it. At about the same time, she told a friend what she had never told anyone. The night I sailed for China, March 3rd, 1893, my life on the human side was broken, and it was never mended again. But God has been enough. That, that is the abundant life. And see, there are people that want to tell you the abundant life Jesus offers is that when your life is broken, he's going to mend it and make it all all better. And someday he will in the new heaven and the new earth. But this side of heaven, the abundant life is but he has been enough. He has been enough. It's not having every desire fulfilled. It's not avoiding a broken heart. It's not the absence of pain. The abundant life is day by day experiencing the all-sufficient supply of the good shepherd for every real need, even as we are still broken. (laughs) That's the abundant life Jesus promises. Oh, man, I am like running out of time. All right, look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Skip down to verse uh, 15. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Uh, verse 17, this is why the Father loves me, because I Lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down. I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. So in these verses, we get to see how the abundant life is accomplished for us. And how is it accomplished? Jesus lays down his life. Voluntarily. Didn't have to do it. Dies on the cross. Takes on our sin, in order to secure life for us. Why did he do it? He loves us. That's right. Heather nailed it. He loves us. Oh, there's so many verses that connect the cross to the love of God. My favorite is probably Romans 5.8. It actually says, God demonstrates his love for us this way. And we're like, well, what way? That's right. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So part of the abundant life, your fourth bullet point there, is being loved sacrificially by the good shepherd. Loved. Loved to the point of dying on the cross. One more. Verse 27. As my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. That's a double negative in the Greek. Very, very strong. Never, no, never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Right there we see that another really amazing aspect of the abundant life is being safe and secure forever in the hands of the good shepherd. It's often called eternal security. (laughs) Once you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are held and secure and kept until the very end. He brings us all the way home. When uh, my oldest, who's now, he turns 13 soon, uh, when he was really little, like before he could barely talk or just was saying just a few little words, Uh, Before he could swim, he was very timid in the pool. Kind of my timid, my timid child. So I would, he'd always want me to hold him. Like he didn't want to do the swimmies. That was too like insecure. So I'd hold him. And as long as we were in the shallow end of the pool and I was holding him, he was very happy, very content, very like felt safe. But whenever I would start to walk a little bit closer to the deep end, he would say, no swim, no swim, like stop. He'd start to feel very insecure. He could feel the water rise on his back. He could sense that we were getting a little deeper in the water. The situation, of course, hadn't changed at all. And if he had the ability to really perceive what was going on, he would have known that regardless of where we were in that pool, whether we were in the shallow end or closer to the deep end, he was 100% dependent on me holding him in order to stay alive. The pool wasn't more or less dangerous to him, regardless of where he was. I mean, a kid can drown in a puddle of water, right? The water's depth at any part of the pool was way over his head. And as long as I was holding him, no matter where we were, there was no good reason to freak out (laughs) or be afraid there are times in our lives when the waters begin to rise and you can feel that you're getting deeper you're getting deeper it could be um, maybe a situation where you just really blow it you like royally sin or something tragic happens or maybe doubt starts to seep in start to kind of deconstruct some parts of your faith, and then it just like starts to, everything starts to feel like it's falling apart. We begin to feel less secure in our salvation. And here's what we need to remember. Whether you're in the shallow end and everything's great, and you're like feeling all the good vibes, Jesus vibes, you know, and like you're like, yeah, me and God are good. Or you're in the deep end, feeling incredibly insecure if you are a follower of Jesus you are and have always been 100 percent dependent on God's grip on you (laughs) And as long as he doesn't let go you're secure and guess what he's never gonna let go he's never gonna let go No matter how high the waters rise, those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus are safe and secure in the hands of their good shepherd. What exactly is the abundant life? Well, it's all those things, all those bullet points, all those things we have talked about. I'm going to end with a Spurgeon quote, and we are sufficiently out of time. You guys got to run and get your kids. Wherever Jesus may lead us, he goes before us. If we know not where we go, we know with whom we go. With such a companion, who will dread the perils of the road? Let us put full trust in our leader, since we know that come prosperity or adversity, sickness or health, popularity or contempt, his purpose shall be worked out, and that purpose shall be pure, unmingled good to every heir of mercy, we shall find it sweet to go up the bleak side of the hill with Christ. And when rain and snow blow in our faces, his dear love will make us far more blessed than those who sit at home and warm their hands at the world's fire. Precious Jesus, draw us, and we will run after thee. Amen and amen. Right? Not good. Any questions? All right. You guys are a joy to teach. 11 and 12 for next week. Lazarus, you guys. Lazarus. So good. Yes, Wendy. I am not. We are done because we are out of time, my friends. Read it. Read it. That will be our benediction. Okay. Other sheep, yes. Yeah, so those are the Gentiles, right? Come into the fold. That's a missionary verse. And yeah, we could spend a whole time talking about that. Yeah, we are the other sheep, pretty much. (laughs) All right, mamas, go get your babies. And um, love you guys. Thank you for being here. See you next week, Lord willing.